Welcome to the Movie Geeks United 40th Anniversary Celebration of Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, one of the great American films. This episode consists of an interview that was taken from the archive of our sibling show Back by Midnight, courtesy of host Aaron Diaz. It's a conversation with acclaimed critic Amy Taubin, who also penned a book on Taxi Driver for the BFI Film Classic series. But first, here's a snippet from a 2008 conversation we conducted with the writer of Taxi Driver, Paul Schrader. Isn't the outcome of a, a great movie uh, not to be defined in a way? I mean, I, I look at Taxi Driver, and we brought this up Wednesday, a great screenplay, great star, great director. But th- there was something else that makes this a timeless movie, some kind of indefinable chemistry where you all were living in that place. And well, it's, just... it's called the zeitgeist. You know, yeah. I mean, the three of us happened to meet at the right time yeah. in our lives, mm-hmm. but we also met in the right time sociologically. And we were, you know, on the cusp and fearless uh, without even knowing how fearless we were yeah. because it felt so real, so right. And, uh, you know, occasionally you get lucky that way. Uh the uh, yeah. well, well, in in terms of Taxi Driver, I mean, there's such. Uh, it seems like you all were just so, so hungry to 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 explore that that world. And I'm wondering how much of a how much of a presence were you on that set? Not much, because uh, I was already beginning to direct my first film. Sure, I was there during pre-production. And we rewrote the script a bit during pre-production, and I think I visited the set twice while okay. we were shooting. Only twice, okay. But I was in Los Angeles uh, working, uh, trying to set up Blue Collar at that time. Sure. And also, I happen to believe that by the time a director is making a film, if the writer hasn't gotten it right, he never will. And right. uh, it no longer belongs to him anymore. And, and, and Bobby called me once from the set, and he said, you know, I was thinking, you know, do you think Travis would say this in, in the scene he was going to do the next day? And I said, Bobby, you know, you're in New York. I'm in L.A. You're wearing my shirt and my boots, which he was. Yeah. You're making the film. If you think this character would say that, he probably would. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and uh, you know, and and that's the way it should be on a film, you know. Yeah. Uh, if if the actor is in the zone and the director is in the zone, um, they don't need the writer anymore. They're they're, they're now living living the life. Right. Um, I completely. If I can ask real quick, I know that you're often asked about a sequel. To Taxi Driver, and, and I think you've you've pretty much shot it down and said that that's not a possibility. But in a way, do you feel that Bringing Out the Dead is is kind of the closest thing we have to a sequel to Taxi Driver? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, unfortunately, the you know it was written for a young person, and uh, circumstances prevailed, and, and an actor was cast who was ten years too old, so it didn't have the buzz that it should have. Mm-hmm. Which would have given it that taxi driver buzz. Yeah, you had a kind of a, a midlife guy having an adolescent crisis. Yes. Okay. 
but I do I do feel like a kind of <clears throat> kind of an arc, kind of a full circle between that that and Taxi Driver, and kind of a, a maturity as well. Uh, you know, we talked about it on Wednesday's show. Whereas Taxi Driver, the only release, the only orgasm, if you will, that this this character can can enjoy is is an act of violence and bring out the dead. All he wants is is peace, and he seems to be coming from that same place as Bickle did. Do you sense that? I mean, did you craft it like that? Yeah, I mean, you try not to get too on the nose. Yeah. You know, I, I've I've written these four scripts, which I think in my mind are sort of linked, which is Taxi Driver, uh, American Jiglo, Light Sleeper, and The Walker. Yeah. You know, and a guy 20, 30, 40, 50. And he's a taxi driver, he's a gigolo, he's a drug dealer, and he's a... Um, a society walker. Right. Mm. Now, in most people's minds, there's no real connection with these kind of people. But in my mind, there is. To my mind, that's the evolution of a soul. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and so that's the kind of artistic glue that makes something cook, because it's not one-to-one. It's sort of one-and-a-half-to-one. And, you know, and whenever there really are connections... They're not, if they're one-to-one, they're not very interesting. They always have to be slightly off to make them interesting. And now, here's Aaron Diaz's interview with critic Amy Taubin. When Taxi Driver came out in 1976, it was uh, part of a wave of, as they call the New Hollywood filmmakers, but it was for Scorsese, it was a true announcement of his talent and putting him in the forefront of the most vital of the new Hollywood filmmakers. He had achieved success previously with Mean Streets and Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, with Ellen Burstyn getting an Oscar for that film, but Taxi Driver was something totally different. It was a culmination of all of his talents up until that point, working with the most exciting actor of up until that point, Mr. Robert De Niro, who had already won an Oscar two years earlier for portraying of all things, Marlon Brando in The Godfather Part Two. De Niro was exciting. Scorsese was exciting. This was their second collaboration together, and it would go on to be one of the most fruitful director-actor collaborations of the last, oh, 35 years. And Taxi Driver had been with us, haunted us, excited us, perplexed us for the last 35 years. A film that might have just been a popular film if limited with critics and film buffs and those who do appreciate you know daring cinema but was forever immortalized with its uh, involvement in the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan by Mr. John Hinckley for because of that association with Taxi Driver the film has probably uh, achieved an immortal status in the last 30 years because of the connection with Jodie Foster and Hinckley it is the ultimate film about big city alienation and about would-be assassins who have you have misplaced their alienation onto a singular figure in the culture, in the media spotlight, who they feel represents all that is wrong in the world. Taxi Driver is there. It is a timeless film and also a movie of its moment. There's a movie about big city, about big city paranoia, New York in particular. But it's also a movie about guns and the need for notoriety at any cost and our willingness to placate a 
low, lonely man's desire to be noticed at any cost. I spoke to Amy Talbot, one of the best uh, film critics of the last 25 years at least, who wrote a BFI Classics monograph on Taxi Driver discussing its themes, its contradictions, the controversy, its origins, and its ever and its lasting impact on the culture. Ms. Calvin is not only a contributing editor of Film Common, but is also you can also read her uh, in many publications, including The Village Voice. I, she has appeared on the show before to talk about uh, the Criterion Collection of My Dinner with Andre, so it was a pleasure to ask her back to talk, of, to talk about Taxi Driver and its legacy. So without further ado, here is Back by Midnight's interview with Ms. Amy Talbot. Second call, 414 Avenue, 417. In Bang the Drum Slowly, the critics called him a brilliant new talent. After Mean Streets, they said he was a genius. For his performance in The Godfather Part Two, they gave him the Academy Award. Come on, man. Just get me out of here, all right? Now, Robert De Niro creates a terrifying portrait of life on the edge of madness. Just forget about this. It's nothing. Taxi Driver, a film by Martin Scorsese. Yeah, people do anything in front of a taxi driver. I mean, anything. People too cheap to, to rent a hotel room. Oh, driver, hurry up, will you? People want to embarrass you. Like, you're not even there. It's like, you know, like a taxi driver doesn't even exist. This city here is... Like an open sewer, you know? It's full of filth and scum. I think I know what you mean, Travis. But it's not going to be easy. Anytime you get to be a secret service man. What? Well, I was just curious, because I thought maybe I'd make a good one. Hey, what kind of guns do you guys carry? 38s, 45s, 357 Magnums, something bigger, maybe. I'd like to volunteer. Why? Why? Because I think that you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. The taxi driver is looking for a target. Getting ready. Getting organized. Preparing himself for the only moment in his life that will ever mean anything. How much for everything? 350 for the Magnum, 250 for the 38, one and a quarter for the 25, 150 for the 380. That taxi driver's been staring at us. You talking to me? You talking to me? I don't know if it's weirder, you or me. <laughs> talking to me? Well, who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. I don't believe I've ever met anyone quite like you. Oh, yeah? You never see a more chilling performance than this. Robert De Niro in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Jodie Foster. Albert Brooks. Harvey Keitel. Leonard Harris. Peter Boyle. Sybil Shepard. Taxi Driver. Do you remember your first viewing of Taxi Driver? My first reviewing of it? My viewing. first viewing yes. of it. Yes. I have absolutely 
no memory of it. It's so strange. Um, I presume that I saw the film when it came out because it was so, you know, notorious. And at that point, I I was doing my graduate degree at NYU, very oh. in cinema studies, very sporadically, however. Uh, and my focus was European arts film and avant-garde film. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would have, I'm, I'm sure I would have seen it then. Mm-hmm. Well, then, let me ask you this. What was the, do you remember when it first started, your first memory of it where it, uh, it started leaving an impression on you. It left an impression on you. And what what would be that? What was that first impression that you remember having of the film? You know, this is this is a very strange thing. <laughs> At a, when I dis, when I was asked by the BFI, the British Film Institute, <laughs> to do one of those classic film books. Mm-hmm. I never hesitated for a moment. I said, well, I want to do Taxi Driver. Um, And everything that preceded writing that book, when I looked at the film, you know, on video hundreds of times, um, everything that preceded that kind of vanished. In other words, I have no memory. I remember going into the project thinking that I wanted to do Taxi Driver because it was an iconic American movie. And besides being, you know, a very powerful movie, it had to do with a lot of issues that I was interested in, like film noir and the neo-noir and the construction of masculinity and that period um, of post-Vietnam War and how similar it was to the post-World War II period that spawned um, film noir, but particularly in the um, in in the period of Taxi Driver, how that had uh, kind of that economic downturn had bonded with this terrible fear of uh of uh the fear of women's newfound power and freedom um because of the women's rights movement tying itself to the civil rights movement and i thought all that is in taxi driver um there were always things that bothered me about the film so i must have thought before that um thought about it a lot uh as a movie, but I just don't have any remembrance of seeing it before that period. So it's very strange. It's almost like studying the film, I completely obliterated my initial reactions and feelings about it. You know, and it's funny, because you talk about this in the book, and and you mention it again, all these themes of uh, taxi driver, post-war, breakdown of masculinity, feminism, Civil rights and and it's, and it's all there in Taxi Driver. But the funny thing is, if if you just watch Taxi Driver, anyone who just watches Taxi Driver for the first time, 
uh, on the surface, it's just kind of this uh, bloody, intense, slow build of a of almost of a horror film. But you could say that about Psycho too, right? Right. Yeah. And uh, it's not until one starts either on repeated viewing or starts thinking about it days later that they realize there's other things going on in it. And I guess I guess what I'm getting at, would you say that this is one of the things that, you know, they talk about Scorsese and Schrader and De Niro talk about they just kind of knew they had to do this, and it's almost as if they didn't even know why they had to do this uh, to a certain extent. But it seemed like it was one of those... Uh, things that just came together of all the right people of dealing with themes but not so much putting a point on that they're dealing with certain themes. Yeah, I mean, I think that each of them actually being, they're from, Scorsese and De Niro are kind of from the same background, but not quite. And Schrader is the odd man out. Um, It was very clear why Schrader had to write that film, why that was Schrader's great script, and um, why he understood that character so well. And that's a story that I do tell in in the Taxi Driver book, and it's been retold many, many, many times. Uh, And it was a kind of uh, incredible coincidence that at the same time that Schrader was having his nervous breakdown and um, living in his car and was abandoned by everyone he knew and, you know, was on his way to becoming a total alcoholic, that he came upon those excerpts from Arthur Bremer's diary, which which had been published in newspapers when Bremer was uh, uh, captured by the police after he had tried to assassinate George Wallace. And that... Bremer's diary really fed that construction of who Travis Bickle was. And the extraordinary thing about that is Travis, the the character on the screen, in turn fed the fantasy of John Hinckley, um, who tried then to assassinate um, uh, uh, President Reagan so that he could forge a mystical bond with Jodie Foster, who had started the teenage prostitute in Taxi Driver. I mean, it's extraordinary. And I'm sure that anyone coming new to the movie now looks at Travis Bickle and sees in his face the face of the guy in um, Tucson, Arizona, who tried to assassinate the congresswoman. Um, It's that same figure of the psychopath who thinks he's an avenging angel um, and that same um, fetishizing of guns and gun violence that makes the film absolutely contemporary now. I mean, it's so absolutely contemporary. Uh, I was flipping through my own book last night and thinking, well, here's another reason that I have to see this before it goes off the screen in the, at the film forum because uh, I haven't seen the restored print yet, um, because it seems like now. I mean, we're rerunning the recession of the 70s. We have these new assassins 
and this new issue of the right to bear arms and uh, Americans defined by bearing arms, it it could be now, mm-hmm. uh, that film. Uh, and I think that's what I saw in it to begin with. That's why I said it was an iconic American movie. And uh, it's funny, you know, um, maybe uh, whether you... Maybe you disagree with this or not, but uh, you know, I when I watched the film recently on on the Blu-ray, it, it occurred to me that you know that this is always you know whenever people talk about Scorsese's great films, you know they always mention Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, he's kind of this holy trinity, and then you know his other films and so forth. But the majority of his films deal with kind of uh, usually deal in the crime area or in underworld of of crime or gambling or avarice or so forth and taxi driver for the most it's kind of weird even though it's you know it's always lumped in with all of his great films if you really step back it's kind of uh, an anomaly for scorsese of that type of character to a certain extent and that type of of uh maybe plot it, looking at his filmography the only film of his that even is kind of uh, that could be kind of a companion piece is obviously King of Comedy uh, to a certain extent, but it, it this seems more in keeping with the the characters that Schrader is constantly looking at. I mean, Travis Bickle can be in that same gallery with the American Gigolo, with the Walker, the Light Sleeper. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that this is. I think the reason that the film is a giant success as opposed to um, the films that Schrader writes and directs is the combination of Scorsese and Schrader and that Scorsese um, muted some of the perhaps more realist elements of Schrader's characters. Um how do I say this? Taxi Driver is a very flashy film in the way it's made. Um, it's got a great deal of cinematic pleasure in it, even if a lot of that pla- pleasure is the pleasure in um, bloodletting. <laughs> um, it's a movie that's about movies, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's... Uh, but, you know, the character of Travis is very unlike, as you said, the Scorsese, usual Scorsese character, except in one way. Um, all the Scorsese films are about outsiders. They're about people who are outsiders to their own culture or are um, actually punished by their own culture. Uh, and that's true of a film like The Age of Innocence as well, which, you know, for me, the great Scorsese films are The Age of Innocence and Raging Bull. Mm-hmm. Um, but Taxi Driver is the important and significant um, Scorsese film culturally and politically and in terms of, you know, <clears throat> a film that's a significant work of art which is also a mass audience film. There are very few of them. Raging Bull isn't quite a mass audience film. 
uh, Age of Innocence certainly isn't. But this one is, and that's a that's a complete rarity in American movies. Well, let me let me ask you about Robert De Niro's performance because you know it, it's interesting. You know, obviously he'd been an actor for years before Taxi Driver. He'd already he'd even won a supporting acting Oscar for Godfather. Yeah, that, I mean it was his hmm. um, the beginning of what was clearly going to be a brilliant career, and and someone who by the time they started, uh, had a name that finally got them over the hump to make the movie because no one wanted to make this movie in Hollywood, you know? And at a certain point, the um, combination of Scorsese, whose actors had been nominated for Academy Awards, even if he hadn't, and, um, and De Niro, you know, they just couldn't say no to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was made for no money, and um, clearly everyone was scared of it. Um, but De Niro was a very important piece of the puzzle. I remember, uh, I guess, Marty telling me that what if one studio that he was dealing with, and maybe it was, I, I don't remember if it was the studio that ultimately made the movie or not, uh, was fighting to have Jeff Bridges play that part. Um, and Bridges could have done it because he had done Psychopaths, but it would have been a completely different movie. Hmm. Yeah, you kind of wonder, uh, well, and, uh, it certainly would have turned there the Jeff bridges Sybil Shepherd pairing, uh, inside out. Yes, <laughs> right. Coming after Last Picture Show. Right. Uh, well, on a, on a couple of aspects, I, I want to talk about the film real, real quick. I, you know, because one of the most, I think maybe the most, uh, in some circles, one of the most divisive aspects of mm-hmm. the film is probably Bernard Herrmann's score, Bernard Herrmann's score. Yeah. And, um, you know, Taxi Driver is what it is now. It, it's, it, it exists. And so it's kind of maybe a little silly to to even debate whether the score is over, you know, over emphatic or... It, a little too much on the nose of the whole film noir aspect of it. But I'm curious of what your take on the score, because this is the first time Scorsese doesn't use uh, source music. He uses mm-hmm. one song, and I must say that the, the one song he does use, Jackson, the Jackson Brown song, that particular scene kind of takes off in the stratosphere as opposed to when it breaks from the using of the score. Right. Uh, and so I'm curious on your take on the uh, use of Bernard Herrmann's uh, Langer's kind of moody score for this film. Right. I mean, I'm I have two different positions on it. The score is partly what makes the movie appealing to a wider audience in that it's an extremely glamorous score. I mean. There is that kind of ominous aspect, which is the first thing that you hear. But then there's that saxophone solo. And that saxophone solo is about the glamour of New York. And it's also uh, a very neo-noir score, um, or just a plain old noir score. Um, It 
is in contradiction to a certain kind of realist aspect of the film, but the film isn't really a realist film. It's an expressionist film. And so you can look at it and say everything in the film is heightened and that the score speaks to a New York that Travis can't really see. You know, the film is and isn't a first-person film. It's a first-person film in the way that noirs are because of Travis's narration. But the elements of the film, um, like the score, like the way in the last scene, it's so clear that Travis is walking into a movie of his own fantasy, but he doesn't know that it's his fantasy. Um, there's so many aspects of the filmmaking that are, I think, quite deliberately separate us from Travis's consciousness. But I've always been very ambivalent about the score. Without the score, you would have a Schrader movie, not a Scorsese movie. You know, without the score, you would have a movie that is much, much less popular. The same thing is true about the use of color in the cinematography. Um, that kind of way, the taxi is the car from hell, but it's also gleaming yellow against those red and green uh, uh, traffic lights. You know, there's a really... The cinematography in the film is of a piece with the score, right? Mm -hmm. And they both speak to a world that is not exclusively Travis's. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm being clear in that way. No, no, no. That's, that, I, I understand. And it, it's interesting. You, you mentioned that you know there's aspects of the film that kind of separate the audience uh, from the film, and, and and we have these momentary. Uh, realization that we are watching a movie mm -hmm. and that kind of ties in I guess to maybe the most discussed shot in the film and that's the one where I I would say for the first time or, or one of the rare times in the film where we actually truly are being told that there is a camera involved and that's the scene of of Travis on the payphone trying to talk to, to Betsy and the camera moves yeah. right mm -hmm. to look down a hallway mm -hmm. and that's that if, uh, really in the film, that might be one of only a, that, that's the most obvious scene where where audience is actually being made aware. I think of the camera, mm -hmm. um, and then it's not until the obvious bloodbath at the end where the camera obviously can't look away. Mm -hmm. We're being forced to watch Travis, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, it kind of seems even though that shot kind of obviously called attention to itself, but it seems to call attention to itself for a later purpose. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that, I think what you're saying is true, but I also think that it's um, psychologically true in terms of what Travis's consciousness is split. It's split because he's intensely focused on that telephone call, you know, which his life is hanging by that telephone cord. And at the same time, he is intensely aware of, you know, I, I don't know if you're or anyone who's listening will be old enough to remember 
going into pay phones in lobbies of New York office buildings when you could just walk into an office building without having to show ID to make, you know, some call on which your life depended and how that is just the loneliest place in the world to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, A long haul of an empty office building where obviously powerful people work and you are at your most powerless because you're at the mercy of whatever someone's going to say on the other end of the phone, whether it's about a date or a job or I don't know what. I mean, I was in that position so many times that (laughs) I kind of know what it felt like and that a kind of awareness of how alone he was at that moment was part of his subjectivity. Right. So it's a very, very canny camera move on Scorsese's part because it is psychologically resonant at the same time that it establishes a certain kind of uh, independence from, you know, the position of Travis's eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, to start wrapping this up, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, when you were you were thinking about this film recently that it is timeless and that uh, that it is present. Uh, it is present. You know, there are what it's dealing with now. It's dealing what it's dealing with then. It, it can also be found today. Absolutely. But I am curious about one aspect of the film and that it's always talked about in these kind of terms, and I think maybe you can attest to a little more than I can, since I've never lived in New York, I've visited. But it does seem Taxi Driver, or at least from an outsider's point of view, seems to probably maybe capture the the paranoia of 70s New York in a heightened way more than maybe any other film of that time. Um, The... It's both I think... stylized, but it's also, it's you know, it's obviously stylized, but it's also, to some people, it's also very naturalistic at, at certain moments. Um, it's, it's some people's paranoid fantasy of what New York was. I mean, you have to remember that New York in the 70s was, in the mid-70s when this was happening, was... A bit scary. You know, I remember being mugged in New York and being nervous walking down the streets and stuff like that. But it was also, for artists, one of the most fertile and most creative times uh, in the history of post-war New York. And, um, And as the 70s were, I mean, there were what we know of 70s filmmaking in Hollywood, but there was you know, this wave of what was called no wave or no New York wave of both films and music that uh, or post-punk that was incredibly generative. And interestingly enough, it's just being revived today all over the art world in New York. You can hardly walk into a gallery where someone isn't showing a revival bumped to DVD of someone's Super 8 work. Um, So it was an incredibly creative moment. Um, Now, I feel more alienated in Times Square today, now that it's really disnified, than I did then when I used to go and play pinball machines and go to Double Features on 42nd Street. So, you know, I don't quite know how to answer that. Travis sees in New York 
um, all of his paranoid fantasies about the end of the world and about corruption, um, which were not was not necessarily true of the people who lived here and had cheap rent and right. survived. Well, and uh, this final question, this is kind of more of a kind of the fun critics talking after the movie question that's always been talked about, and even Schrader and De Niro have kind of mentioned it from time to time of, you know, where is Travis now? And so I'm curious of what you feel about the uh, the ending of the film, because uh, that's always been the one thing that people have always talked about. You know, is it in his fantasy, or is it actually real that he's a hero, and he just didn't get caught this time, which is one way Schrader uh, has put it and so forth. Uh, so I'm kind of curious on how you feel about the open-endedness of Taxi Driver. Well, <coughs> I didn't, I hadn't lost my voice before I got on the phone. I had a bad cold, but now I'm losing it very fast, so I hope this works for you. Um, I don't think, you know, and I think this is part of the score you hear that underlying menace of the movie music coming up at the end of the film. I don't think it's open-ended at all. I think it's very clear that this guy is going to flip out again, mm-hmm. um, that there has been a certain kind of catharsis, and he caught this break because, you know, in this insanely upside-down world, he's made into a hero for what he does. But he's going to flip out again. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's hanging on by a thread. I think what's more interesting is that, you know, we see the Travises among us all the time. And we see it particularly in relation to, you know, the, the movie has this gun porn right in the middle of it when Travis goes and buys this. And Scorsese's line in the back seat of the car about... Uh, what a 44 Magnum can do to a woman's pussy, right? Right. Um, None of that has gone away or changed, except that, you know, now you can buy clips for those guns where you can kill two dozen people at one pop. And Um, also, the most provocative (laughs) thing that doesn't seem to get talked about much, much is that, you know, you say, and it is true, Travis is hanging on by a thread and that he'll probably flip out again. But it is very provocative that Betsy uh, seems, the implication is that she seems possibly turned on by this when she gets into his cab again the second time. Now, whether or not this is in his head or this is real, but if we were to take this as an actual thing that she gets in his cab again, this is a little, uh, this is kind of a a strange twist on her character. Well, it's not really because... Betsy, who is not painted in the film in a very flattering light, mm-hmm. is a star fucker. I mean, that's what she is. She's um, She falls for celebrity. So she's, you know, uh, following around the politician. And now Travis has been in the newspaper, and she sees him in a slightly different light. I think she's quite wary. I don't think she's going to go out on a date with him again. But the idea that this guy who was so strange and so turned on by her is now a celebrity hero for having rescued another woman, 
is something that she would be turned on by. You know, she never really figured him out. And in the context of the film, I've never been sure that um, I ever believed that even someone as batty as Travis would take this woman to a porn movie. You know, I can justify it psychologically. You know, that it is a kind of metaphoric rape. But I still don't buy that he would have done it. Well, I've always found it interesting that uh, when he goes into that uh, campaign office to ask her out for coffee and they have their, their lunch date and so forth, I've always found it hilarious that to a certain extent, or at least momentarily, their wires are crossed, but Betsy is finding some kind of connection with Travis. And, you know, her red flags really should have been going up from moment one. But, of course. Uh, <laughs> There does seem to be something wrong with her when they're not. So mm-hmm. when, it's obvious, when it's so obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Um, but you could also say that she's, in a certain way, very naive, and she's just never encountered a nut job like this, who's pretty good at covering up that he is a nut job. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, um, you haven't asked anything at all about. You know, I wonder if this generation knows before they go walking into this film or put on the DVD the uh, you talking to me scene, right? Which right. is the scene that lives outside the film. And I've always been fascinated by that scene because people quote it so casually as if it's a kind of, I don't know what they think about it when they quote it, if it's a kind of joke or what. I mean, for me, Travis is rehearsing in the in the mirror a murder that is also a suicide. I mean, the mirror uh, um, concretizes the fact that Travis is, split psychologically. I mean, he's a paranoid schizophrenic at that moment. And the the person in the movie, in the mirror, is other to him. But at the same time, it's him. And so to rehearse shooting yourself in the mirror as if you were shooting another person is very, very, very complicated. And I think it's that underlying psychological complexity that in a way when people commit suicide they also are murdering someone else and vice versa um, that makes the scene so indelible and what is interesting about the scene well, two things are interesting one uh, it's funny you know it is true that that line is quoted it's almost become part of people's everyday speak at some point mm-hmm. Uh but it is funny that the times that the couple of times I've seen the film in theaters, as much as it's been parodied and people have joked about it, that scene never gets a laugh. It's mm-hmm. always, for some reason, that scene is still able to overpower all its parodies and everyday casualness that it's now become, mm-hmm. and it still seems to hypnotize audiences. Well, and then what's also interesting is that everyone always quotes, "Are you talking to me?" 
but they never quote the second line, which is, I'm the only one here. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. seems to be the, uh, the, the, other, the other part of the puzzle right. uh, of the line, are, are you talking to me? And the line being, I'm the only one here. So the only person who's talking to you is you. Right. I mean, when people quote the line, and, you know, sometimes I say it. You know, you're talking to someone, especially these days, and they're talking on their phone, and you're, people are say, constantly saying, you're talking to me? No, I'm talking to the person on the phone, right? <laughs> um, but when you see the scene, the other reason it's so powerful and so chilling are the camera angles, because when he's pointing that gun at himself, in the, at his mirror image, that gun is also 10 degrees from being pointed at where the audience is in the reverse angle. Right. You know, very near pointed straight between your eyes. And if you look at the editing of that scene, it's really, really brilliant. And I think accounts for the reason it's still chilling as opposed to recognizing, oh, that's a line we all know. Well, not, and not only that, it's probably, I'd have to see the again, um, but it is the one continuous sequence, extended sequence, that has uh, no music of any kind. Yeah. And it's done mostly in silence, and the only noise in it is of the guns mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. of the ambient sound of outside everyday life. Right. And it is interesting that the two scenes dealing with guns, when Travis is buying the guns and then when he's in his apartment making the gun slide and rehearsing, those are the two sequences that are in, you know, in movie terms, they're played, I guess you could say, real. Mm-hmm. That is a brilliant point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that is true. And it, it's like where the movie is nearly too scary to think about because you know it comes down on it comes into the real as opposed to this is a movie or this is a fantasy mm-hmm. I mean I think fantasy is the operative word yeah and uh, and it I guess in the end what what what's I guess the final thing to say about taxi driver even though there have been countless films since taxi driver and of course before taxi driver that have been kind of uh angry young man kind of uh, rallying calls, you know, be it, you know, be it Fight Club or be it Social Network. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they all, you know, these are all films that, you know, frustrated young males kind of, grab, you know, grasp onto, but it seems that Taxi Driver seems to be kind of the the template and the one that kind of hovers over all of these films. I think... I think that may be true, but Taxi Driver isn't sweet generous. I mean, it comes out of a long line of Hollywood movies and, very importantly, out of the same movie that influenced all the movie brats, which was The Searchers. I mean, there is a way that Travis is Ethan in The Searchers, that Ethan, the um, unrepentant, fighter for the Confederacy who's now, you know, going to save the world from miscegenation, um, who uh, is alone, who is the 
image of the lone good gunman in the West Gone Bad. I mean, Ethan is the is the character where you see the lone cowboy hero. You see the cracks in him, and you see how easily he could become the psychopath serial killer. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that racism is so strongly the problem in the searchers. And the unstated, you know, they were so scared. I mean, this is the other important thing, Scorsese and Schrader, and they write about this a lot. They were so scared of the film being perceived as racist Mm -hmm. that it is more racist than it would have been if they had just played it straight. For example, um, you know, they decided that... uh, uh, Jodie Foster's pimp had to be played by a white man, by Harvey Keitel, even though there weren't any white pimps handling uh, uh, prostitutes on the street at that point. You know, Schrader talks about how he spent a year looking for the great white pimp and couldn't find him because they didn't exist. Right? I, I remember that when I read that, and I read that, I, I flashed to the, uh, the Hughes brothers when they made the movie American Pimp, and they said, mm-hmm. you know... <laughs> There are no white pimps, no good mm-hmm. ones anyway. Uh, just that's just the way it is. And the thing is, though, I, I, you know, I, and I, I concede the point that you know that they they hedge their bets a little. But it seems to me that anyone in the audience, even though sport is a white pimp, that even in the audience, you, I, I gotta assume most audience members knew that well. Really, that's a black character, but they're playing it safe. It's almost as if even by not uh, by playing it safe, audiences still seem to knew what was going on. I think. Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, there are uh... maybe sophisticated. I mean, audiences in the know they knew that Sport was a black pimp, but they knew, you know. They knew, if not, they knew Sport was a black pimp. They knew they knew there were no white pimps. I think in the audience, the more knowing audience members. Yeah, but the thing that what happens as a result mm-hmm. is that Travis is a racist when he looks at the outside the car, the taxi at Times Square, and he says he wants to clean up the city. He's a white guy looking at basically. The scenes of black exploitation movies mm-hmm. happening in Times Square outside the windows. That's what he wants to clean up. Um, but at a crucial moment, and then when he he would do that, they get scared and pull back. When he actually would turn a gun on a black pimp. Mm-hmm. That's what's so weird about the film. They go so far and no further. And in a funny way. Um, they are also retaking that scene because you have to realize that the movies that took place in Times Square uh, in the years immediately preceding Taxi Driver were black exploitation movies, and right. in the black exploitation movies, um, there were pimps and there were prostitutes, but they had agency. They were the subject of the film. And in Taxi Driver, they get turned back into background. Right. Um, And 
that's a problem that the film just never coped with, you know? It, but it's also, and, uh, and I agree with it, but it's, I find it also telling that, in my view, the most brutal of all the killings is not in the bloodbath, which is kind of more operatic and so forth, but the most brutal of all the killings is of the black guy in the convenience store. Absolutely. Absolutely, and you know that Travis looks down at him and he thinks this is an animal, not a person, you know, and you know that that also is some sort of Vietnam flashback. I mean, if you were watching the movie in 76, you knew that that's how uh, um, um, the guys who were in the army were trained to think of the Vietnamese as gooks, not humans, Um, and that's what happens to Travis then. Um, so it's there, and then they cop out on it. Right. Because, you know, if you had to confront Travis, um, the guy in the convenience store, well, you can say he does it because the guy has a gun and is committing a crime. But Harvey Keitel, that's, that's another kind of circumstance. Well, and also, not only is it, you know, the the guy in the convenience store, but not only Travis's racism is there, but also the convenience store owner, who the scene ends on a brutal note where he starts pounding the guy's midsection and, uh, you know, uh, up against the, the convenience store cor- corner mm-hmm. uh, counter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it just, that, that, that more than anything, once again, that seems to be a moment that's almost played in, uh, it's played on a, almost like a realistic level, mm-hmm. unlike the the final bloodletting. And that, to me, has always been the more horrific of all the the, the killings mm-hmm. of all of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it seems to me, though, but I guess in the, it seems to me that these, this contradiction, or you know, a couple, some of these contradictions in the film where they kind of hedge their bets on certain things, is kind of what has made Taxi Driver kind of uh, resonate even, you know, thirty plus years later. I think uh, just because it has that uh, that confusion or that, uh, you know, as you said, that cop out at a certain point. It's one of those things that people start arguing about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's also the way when certain things are repressed in films, they stay in your mind even stronger. I mean, I always think of uh, the moment in The Searchers when Ethan comes back from burying the older sister who's been raped and and killed uh, by Scar and his bunch. And... He says to her boyfriend, never ask me, you know, more. I won't tell you anymore. Never never ask me anymore about what what was there. And, of course, that's what, having said that, you know, tell anyone, never ask me anything more about what I saw there. That's all you think about for the rest of the movie. The image isn't in the movie. It's in your mind's eye for the rest of the movie, and that's what motivates them, you know, for five years to go around to get revenge and to um, find Natalie Wood in in John Wayne's eyes for almost all that time to kill her because she's been uh, a squaw. 
Right. And then at the last moment, he can't do it. Right. Uh, well, that, that, I think, is one of the extraordinary moments in American movies where you, you plant a fantasy by not showing it. Or you right. call up a fantasy that you know your audience collectively holds mm-hmm. by not showing it. And that's all Travis seems to be doing when he goes to these porn theaters or goes to the 42nd Street or, you know, to these streets with the pimps and the and the prostitutes. is just constantly, uh, I guess, feeding his fantasies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ms. Talbot, I've kept you long, more than long enough, and I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk about Taxi Driver. It's a terrific, uh, obviously it's a terrific movie, but uh, your BFI classic book is an essential read on this subject. Oh, thank you, and thank you for letting me think about Taxi Driver again. I haven't thought about Taxi Driver in about 12 years, and it was great to think about it. Mm -hmm. 